the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Canada will soon allow medically assisted dying for mental illness. And then Samaritan's Purse gives away their 200 millionth Christmas shoebox. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a Wednesday afternoon. Aubrey? Yes, sir. Thanksgiving is coming. Snow is coming. Christmas is coming. All of it's coming. Lots of good, lots of bad. I don't know what to do with all of this. It's all good. Every time you say Christmas is coming, I just go, Christmas is coming. The goose is getting fat. Please do put a penny in the old man's hat. Whoever had under one minute to get Aubrey (laughs) singing on the show. You are the winner today. (laughs) We're glad that you're with us today. If you've missed any of our shows this week, go get the podcast, wherever it is, get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, It is good to be with you. All right, Aubrey, I want to start with a story that I read that I saw that I was like, okay, we talk a lot about pro-life issues. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to say what's happening in, in this case, Canada is going to happen here, but golly, there is something going on in Canada. We talked about this about a month ago called uh, MAID, the MAID um, program. Right. It is, uh, it is basically this. The original version of the MAID bill uh, allows assisted death, so assisted suicide for patients with imminent death. It basically made legal euthanasia mm. for people who are dying. And then it began to expand. So the way we talked about it about a month or two ago was people who had chronic physical ailments. So they weren't dying, but their their life was just in a bad spot. And at that time, you and I said, feels like a slippery slope. Like we had a problem with it then at that stage, but also feels like a slippery slope. And it also was like. You know, is Canada just a little bit ahead of us? Are we never going here as the United States? Well, let me tell you where that slippery slope has led. Uh, The original are are now the MAID, M-A-I-D, and I forget what it stands for, but they are now considering allowing for assisted suicide for people with mental illness. Wow. You and I have done many a story about the pervasiveness of mental illness right now. Uh, People with depression, anxiety, um, you know, all sorts of mental disorders. And these are terrible things. This story, this article is just kind of following the stories of people who are, you know, been struggling with mental illness. But now the fact that the government of Canada is putting forth legislation that allows people with mental illness, even at their darkest of times, to choose medically assisted death is, uh, this feels, I don't know, it's dystopian the word. This feels like, this feels like a movie. I I can't believe that it got to that point. MAID stands for uh, medical assistance in dying, by the way. 
in um, dying. I couldn't figure yeah. out what the I was. Yeah, it. You know, it is interesting because it was only for patients with a foreseeable death originally. I think that was 2016, mm-hmm. but that requirement was removed just last year. That's when you and I were talking about it. And I agree, it does, it has a slightly dystopian feel to it. Now, one thing that I'm hopeful for is it does say in each of these cases where it's uh, mental health, the the case will be studied for two years mm-hmm. before Parliament uh, decides if a patient can receive um, medical assistance in dying. So I'm grateful it's not like in that very moment of depression that can happen. But I, I, I think the hard part about this is it f- <sighs> you'd think you'd want to help the person who is struggling mentally to find treatment and uh, receive therapy and go on medication and do whatever you could yeah. to experience wholeness and healing and to not choose death as an option. But I recognize also, I'm saying this as someone who does not struggle with really debilitating mental health. And so I know that some people who are struggling might be like, no, it's like the worst thing ever. I feel like I'm living in a prison in my own body. I want out. But I think even to that person, I would say, but you are valuable. You matter. We need you. You're here for a purpose on purpose. Don't give up. And I think that's maybe it's just an emotional response I'm having. But I think this is... um it it does it, dystopian feels right like dark it feels dark yeah Ryan. and and this is it's one thing to say people are struggling and want out. It's another thing to say the government is going to set up the system for which they can get out. That's where it feels dystopian. This is yeah. where it feels. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked last time about the slippery slope, and now we're heading down it. Right. And where we going? Right. So for some background, uh, made M A I D, which you say medically assisted, assisted in, in death, medical assistance in dying. Right. This program had roughly in Canada in 2016 a thousand people. 2017, just under 3,000. It kept going up to 2021, 10,000 people. And the trajectory is more and more and more each Mm. year. And so the question becomes, once you've opened Pandora's box, this is what this feels like. They, They probably, I would still disagree with it, but they still, they clearly wrote this law in order to give an out for people who are facing death. Right. To, you know, to give them dignity and whatever else it might be. But once you open that pandemic, uh, that uh, Pandora's box, once you say, hey, we're going to be a culture of death, once you start to do that, now these other things have come out. Well, what about if somebody has a bad, they got a lot of pain. They may not be dying, but they, they have a really bad, uh, or, okay, okay, now we're going to do that. Now, what about people who are struggling with, what's next? This well, is what I mean by the slippery slope. There's an example on here, Brian, and you and I both know somebody who has struggled with this before. A, a young uh, woman in her 40s struggled with anorexia for years, never found treatment. She'd been hospitalized, etc. She vowed to go home and starve herself if she wasn't approved for um, MAID. Her father agreed her condition was deemed incurable and her suffering intolerable. She received an assisted death. I mean, I I know at least two women who are really struggling with this. And to think that they would just give up the fight is heartbreaking. And I do think this is where I understand that there are situations that are untenable and impossible and the suffering is intolerable. And yet this is why partly I think the church needs to provide a, a better theology, a less anemic theology of suffering for yeah. people to understand like what is happening well, in our suffering simultaneously if we are pro-life people mm-hmm. 
we have to be pro-life all the way. Mm -hmm. And this includes like, no, we want you to live. We don't want this medical assistance and dying to be an option for you if there's a way out. Yeah. And so what mm. you said earlier, uh, let me just kind of unpack it a little bit. Uh, they have two tracks of patients, those okay. whose death is reasonably foreseeable and a second who have, quote, grievous and irremediable conditions. That's what this would fall under mm-hmm. that aren't terminal, but who they've said is intolerable. Both cases, people must be 18, found capable of making a decision and approved by two doctors for the cases mm-hmm. that aren't terminal. This is. There's a 90-day waiting period. That's it. That's it. And then one of the assessors must be a specialist. Uh, mm. Let me jump on two of the things that you said here. One, uh, I will just say, is we talk about being pro-life. It's not just abortion. Yeah. And we're going to get to this later yeah. when we talk about the death penalty a little right. bit. But right. it's not just abortion. Right. If we're going to be either a culture of life or a culture of death, what are we going to be? Is God, has God given up on us? Mm. So let me let you, though, speak to this because you said a theology of suffering. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. And this is unfair because I'm speaking, I'm speaking from a, a, a Western, like American point of view, but I don't think we have a strong, I mean, let's even talk outside of theology. We don't have a strong grasp or willingness to long suffer Mm -hmm. in America. And, and let's just say, let's say North America include Canada in that. Right. Um, and I, I do think this is a place where the church can really step in and have a thicker theology of suffering. Like the God's people, God has always been with his people through their suffering, has always brought redemption and beauty from it and life from it every single time. Mm. And ultimately, what we know is even in um, situations that feel impossible, somehow God shows up and does miraculous things, has through history, will always do. And so though suffering is terrible, none of us want it. There are gifts of suffering that just can't happen in other places in life. They just can't. Some of that is it shapes your character. It shapes your compassion. It gives you resilience. And some of it is literally being shaped into Christ likeness through his suffering. We are saved in ours. And if the church could lead the conversation in this and help people embrace, I'm not saying embrace it like suffering's awesome, but embrace it in understanding. This is a part of life. God is here this is developing something in me. There's beauty on the other side of this. I think that would give people the ability to um, yeah. to persevere. But then again, even outside, let's take it outside of a church context, like for all people to see the value of their own life and of mm-hmm, fighting and mm-hmm. of resting when they don't want to fight. And anyway, I, I can't pretend like I know the answers and have an easy solution for people who are in deep, deep psychiatric pain. And yet just I it's so devastating to me to think that people who might have an opportunity to recover would choose to die before they gave themselves that chance. Absolutely. So uh, let me see how this ends here. It says expanding made isn't only a medical debate. Ethicists point out it has cultural consequences that may seep over time into how we measure intolerable suffering, what investments we prioritize in healthcare, the value we place on certain lives, our definition of a good death. Mm. The debate won't end with mental illness. As part of its min- mandate, the parliamentary committee is also hearing testimony on whether to give, listen to this phrase, mature minors 
access to MAID no. and how to allow advanced requests, particularly for Canadians mm. with dementia. So uh, just, I don't know, I find this stuff so dark. dark. We would be foolish dark, if we thought this is just how people think in Canada. Yeah. And that this is coming. Yeah. And we is, I, I think, can I say one yeah, more thing? Absolutely. I also think we would be foolish. This language could be very easily painted as compassionate. Yep. And I think we would be very foolish to buy into anything leading to death as compassion. There you go. Well, the, a, a dark story, but one that I think that we need to wrestle with as the church. I have a child turning 19 years old tomorrow. <gasps> what? You are old. 19 years old tomorrow. And she, uh, I'm, I might cry here. I'm just joking. She, this is her Cats first. in the cradle in the suits. She's not home. She's at college. Aww. Crazy, uh, yeah. No, that'd yeah. be great. My it's daughter crazy. Madeline turning nineteen tomorrow. But you'll so see her soon, right? For the we Thanksgiving will see holiday, her very, good. very soon. Good, good, so good. excited for that. All right, Aubrey. Samaritan's Purse, Operation Christmas Child. Yes, they gave away their two hundred millionth Christmas shoebox. That number feels like. If you'd that ask me, is unbelievable. If you had asked me how many shoeboxes they've given away, I would have guessed like five million, <laughs> or like ten million. Like those are huge numbers. This is two hundred million boxes, uh, which I find really unbelievable. Many, do we know how many years Samaritan's Purse has been in existence? That they have like, yeah, I wonder how many boxes a year, all that kind of thing. I guess that doesn't matter, but that's amazing. It started with hundred million. Eleven thousand delivered to Bosnia the okay. first year of Operation Christmas Child in nineteen ninety-three. Wow. And it is eleven and expected eleven million this mm. year delivered all over the world. Samaritan's Purse has delivered the gifts to children in a hundred and seventy countries unbelievable unbelievable you said you had an operation christmas yeah. child uh, story yeah i have a very cool operation christmas child story so when kevin and i lived in zambia uh we were there over the christmas season and the operation christmas child the shoe boxes came they came to where we were and it's a town called indola zambia and Indola is divided up into a lot of African towns are divided up into this kind of a city center. And then outside of the city center are the tribes, kind of what you picture when you picture Africa, like a little more rural. And then these um, they're called compound compound okay. communities. And and they are these are like mud brick homes, person on person on person on person living side by side. Yep. And honestly, kind of what you think of of poverty in Africa when you think of poverty in Africa. So the people who live in the town center, especially compared to those in the compounds and the villages are the wealthy people. Now, compared to America, it's still different. But like if you live in town, you've got a home, you go to a grocery store, you have running water, you're rich okay. in Zambia. Well, these boxes arrive and one of the big town churches took all of the boxes mm. for their kids. <laughs> okay. Okay. And really, they could have, because they're still kids in Zambia. They could have. But at the end of the day, they were not the most impoverished kids in the community. So my husband's mentor, a guy named Lawrence Tempway, one Sunday morning, took the mic from the pastor and basically said, shame on you. These are not your boxes. They belong to the kids in the compound. Let's or the the compound community. Let's all go down there now and deliver them. And he led the way 
to taking all of these boxes to the rightful kids in the community. And what I've always thought about that story is this. Even if sometimes there can be some snarkiness about Mm -hmm. something like Samaritan's Purse, who knows who pockets it? What if it doesn't go to the right people? You know what? God's will is done. And there are righteous people in those places doing the right thing, making sure the kids that need those gifts get the gifts. And at the end of the day, I think our call is to give and Mm. and pray and trust that like it's going to get to the heart of a child that needs it and trust that like God's going to intervene when God needs to intervene. I I have always been, I I loved seeing the smiles on the kids' faces um, from the Samaritan's Purse boxes, the Operation Christmas Child boxes. But I also just love that story because to me it was like, oh yeah, God's will is going to be done when when God's people stand up for what's right. So... You touched on something there. One of the strange things I think that is that my church does Operation Christmas Child. Um, One of the things that I have found strange, and maybe I shouldn't think it's strange because the Christian world has grown so snarky, is I feel like a lot of people have turned on Operation Christmas Child the last couple of years. Do you you feel that? I do. I I don't want to offend any of our listeners, but don't you think part of that is because of Franklin Graham and his support of Trump? I think his politics. I do think you're right about that. I think a lot of that. but And so maybe that's what it comes from. But I feel like there's been a lot of... Is this really helpful? Yes. This just makes you feel better about yourself. We're just sending junk around the world. Yeah. And I always find that to be strange Mm -hmm. because I'm always like... It's the old uh, someone else's bad evangelism is better than my non-evangelism. I was literally just thinking that. Like, okay, then, if you don't want to send a shoebox to a kid across the country, fine. Is there another alternative that you yeah. have to, like, bring hope to a child at Christmas around the world? Great. So Do it's that. introducing the gospel. It's mm-hmm. give, Is it giving, like... You know, the greatest of things. No, but, and it's teaching. I don't think we need to apologize for teaching our kids to be giving through this or to be, where is that about the snarkiness? Maybe it's just the politics. Maybe. I don't think it's just the politics. I think the politics is a piece of it, but you hear this in other organizations as well. I think some of it is, is this condescending? Is this like, oh, we're the rich people give, you know, but at the end of the day, Brian, I actually think you're right. It's being generous, yeah. and this is one way to choose generosity. If you don't like this one, pick another one. But we had somebody from a Samaritan's Purse on yeah, the show. Week? Was that last week I think or so. two weeks ago? And he was. It a, all comes a, together now. He was a beneficiary of one of those boxes as a little kid, and he was saying, "Look, he was lonely. His parents were killed That's right. in Rwanda. That's what That's it was. Right. Yep. And he was saying." Look, this box made me know that God saw me. And so I think if we can sort of get beyond our little, like, whatever, our little, I'm so precious, blah, 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 and go. But I want to nitpick everything. Maybe God is actually going to do something beyond I could imagine in the life of a child who desperately needs hope. That should be the end of the conversation. And if you don't want to do Operation Christmas Child? another one. Don't do Operation Christmas Child. Yeah, but I like it. I like Operation Christmas Child myself. So 200 million boxes. That is to be applauded. Good job. That's incredible. All right, Aubrey. One of our favorite podcasts over the last year has been the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Can you explain to people who may be unaware, maybe didn't hear us talking about it? Yes, the rise and fall of Mars Hill was a podcast that CT uh, produced and I guess led by Mike Cosper, who's been on the show before in past right. episode talking about um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. But it follows 
Really, the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church, led by Pastor Mark Driscoll, and it was a church that was really influential, and he was a pastor who was deeply influential. Brian, what would you say? Early 2000s? Mid-2000s? All of it. From early 2000s through like 2000. 15, that kind of time, for sure. And essentially what the story tracks is why the church fell apart, because it one day basically just ended, Driscoll left, and then he started a new church. But what we've seen is that the rise and fall of Mars Hill or Mars Hill Church was kind of a microcosm of some of the other... Uh, my, kind of a microcosm of some of the bad versions of evangelicalism, like uh, a corrupt pastor, angry pastor, but a church who fed the- celebrity pastor, a lot of yeah. celebrity, a lot of abuse behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing about the, the story is that Mars Hill Church, and I'll never forget when it happened. I've told you back in 2008, 2000, I was listening to Mark Driscoll weekly all the Most time. Most church planters were. That is true. Yeah. That's true. Most male church planters, especially. Yes. Um, but I I would say he got fired and his church, he didn't get fired for uh, in inappropriate sexual behavior, right. money, whatever. He got fired because he was a jerk. Yeah. And he got fired because he was abusive yeah. in power. Uh, their church, which was like one of the flagship yeah. successful churches in the Most nation. influential church. Within a month of it, him getting fired, ceased to down. exist. Yeah. Ceased to exist. Yeah. And now this podcast, I would encourage people to go check out the rise and fall of Mars Hill. This podcast kind of unpacks a lot of that. Yeah, explores why and the damage that was caused. Absolutely. So they just put out the final episode. Wow. Mike Cosper, I think they just called it epilogue. Okay. And it's like 30, 40 minutes or so where he's going with one of the former pastors. I forget the name. They go back to the first building. They kind of walk in around Seattle and they're kind of processing. And Mike Cosper then kind of wraps up the whole podcast. Like, what has this all been about? What's the takeaway? Mm. I want you to hear that and then we'll reflect on it. There's no shortage of warning tales about grandiosity. From Homer to Stan Lee, from Shakespeare to George Lucas, the human heart knows the dangers of the lust for power. And yet, we can't find help but grasp for it again and again. I've spent a lot of time thinking and talking about how the church moved forward over the last year. As I close the book on this series, I have to admit that I don't really know. And I'm not sure anyone really does. That's okay, because maybe there's not a clever strategy that's going to save us and guide us through that. Because God's the one that's going to climb the diamond, sift the wheat from the chaff, and prepare the church for whatever comes next. What's most important for us instead is to die to our own grand plans, to simply tell the truth about all that's broken, both in our churches and ourselves. And to turn to God with that spirit of brokenness, to come in search of grace, to hold out these stories like a beggar holding out his hands, saying simply, how long, O oh Lord? Mm. I mean, I found that to be so Beautiful. powerful after going into it. But what I appreciated about what Cosper said was, Aubrey, we all want the answer. Yeah. And he said, yeah. I don't. He's just invested two years of his life right, in this right. project. And at the end, you know, you would like to get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon goes, here's what I figured out. Mike Cosper said, 
maybe it's okay that we don't know mm. the answer, that there's not a new strategy, yeah. that there's not a new way of doing this. There's yeah. not, because that'll get us to the same spot. What'd you think about him? I mean, he's invested his whole life into this mm-hmm. and I'd encourage you to listen to the whole thing, but what did you think about the way those were his final words for this podcast series? I, I mean, as someone who is passionate about lament, I appreciate that he ended with a cry of lament and I feel like that's right. Um, that's sort of the only answer when we look at the heartache of of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. And again, not just Driscoll and Mars Hill, but what they represent. Yes. Right? And that you do sort of have to hold your hands open and go, how long, oh Lord? Like, mm. I don't know. Our sin and our brokenness is so beyond depravity. Um, and the, what we have made of God's church is just... I mean, absolutely heartbreaking. And so in one sense, I appreciate the heart of, of Cosper not going. So now I've learned these three lessons. Exactly. Let me wrap this up in a pretty little package for you. Instead, I think what he's doing is giving weight to like, this is really, 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 really heartbreaking and devastating. And yeah. I think the reality that he didn't say, maybe I didn't listen to the whole episode, but like, the quiet thing that we can say aloud for him is the reality is like Driscoll's still a pastor. And, he says it in the podcast. Oh, he does he talks it. about and it in so the podcast. I, I think there's some heartbreak too. Again, not just about Driscoll, but about what that means. Like the fact that here's this without guy, repentance, without, yeah. in fact, he's, he's come out very strongly mm-hmm. against what has been leveled against him. Right. Right. And so no repentance, no remorse, no humility, And yet he's still very successful and very influential and being platformed. And I think that's part of why you have to go, how long, oh, Lord? Like, Mm -hmm. I can can push a podcast and promote what I think is really heartbreaking and real and hope the church changes. At the end of the day, like, the machine might be, the the evangelical industrial complex might be too strong Mm. and too mighty of a machine to tear down, you know, but only God can. And I do think, you know, I guess the beautiful thing about the work that Cosper has done and just all of us sort of reflecting on what Mars Hill represented is, I do think it was a, the podcast was so interesting because it was kind of a come to Jesus moment for all of us. Like you just saying, I listened to Driscoll a lot, a lot. And I think for us just to go, okay, what part did I play mm-hmm. in uh, indirectly or directly in building this guy to be who he was and in celebrity church culture in general? And what part can I play now to not just dismantle it, but build a more beautiful church? Yeah. And I think we're kind of left with that question. Yeah. There was nobody that was more influential when I was starting my church yeah. outside of like my home pastor that I listened to more than yeah. probably Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler, right. probably those two. Right. And so it does make you look back and go, whew, mm-hmm. like, yes, I see this. But mm-hmm. in the time, how did we miss it? Mm-hmm. What's one takeaway for you, though? For, I know Cosper left us going. We just have to rely on the Lord here. We just need God to redeem his bride, if you will, or uh, whatever other imagery you want. But there are some takeaways here. So I'll start for me. I really think the takeaway is we must and we can only do this as individuals. And hopefully then it grows into more of a collective movement. We got to figure out a way not to have celebrity Christians, pastors, at least. Like we have to figure out ways. uh, And you and I have talked about them. I don't think these will ever happen. But. Maybe some of these big pastors need to stop putting their messages on on, on iTunes and YouTube yeah, and wherever else. Yeah, Never and just gonna happen. have it be for their local church community. But I don't know if everybody out there realizes, like, 
the celebrity nature, there's pastors who don't write a word of their books who are selling books with their names on it because they are celebrities. And oh, yeah, like, and they're best-selling books. And you're like, how is that yeah. possible? Yeah. You know, there are – we just – you hear about these stories all the time. And somehow we serve a savior who rejected celebrity. Mm-hmm. But somehow our movement has become driven by celebrities. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you do about that, but as long as that's the case – it's going to not look like Jesus. And I think the thing about Jesus, too, is like reject again and again and again. He would say, no, no, no. Yeah. no. Like he was so intentional about it. I do think whatever size church you're in, because sometimes we can go, this is a mega church problem. Yeah. I don't think this is a mega church problem. I I think that there's a there's a there's a piece of the mega church that mm-hmm. can lead to this 100 yeah. percent. But I think part of it is for each and every one of us in our communities to, like Cosper said, like die to our own grandiosity yep. again and again and again yep. and again. And just, Lord Jesus, like I must decrease, you must increase. Yes. And let's let that be the prayer of our churches and our own hearts as we follow after God and pray that his grace is bigger than our sin. Amen. I'd encourage you to go listen to it if you haven't yet. The Rise and Fall of Marcel. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. It's difficult. It's encouraging. It's discouraging. Yeah. It's all of these emotions. Yeah. Uh, and the last one was wonderful. So mm. I would encourage you to give wow. it all a listen. Wow. Former President Trump declared his intentions to become future President Trump. Uh, yep, I heard lots of people. I saw lots of people on Twitter making fun of Magaga. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of. It's going to be interesting. Let's just put it that way because it seems like a lot of people have turned on him and gone kind of towards His DeSantis. Own party seems to That's have. what I mean, like yep. towards DeSantis. Yep. But in the end, he's a fighter. He so is a fighter. He might do this. But Aubrey, I have a joke for you. Oh, Ready let's for a, hear it. A, a politics slash Christian <gasps> joke. I don't know. Am I? I think you are. Okay. You ready? Yep. Aubrey. <laughs> Yes, Brian. How do we know Donald Trump is a Calvinist? Oh, how do we know Donald Trump is a Calvinist? Doesn't give up on elections. (laughs) That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's a very specific joke. Like, if you don't know Calvin, that's not funny. Or Trump. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. So, uh, you know, I I think you and I have made somewhat clear some of our thoughts about um, President Trump and, you know, our excitement or lack of excitement of him jumping back into the race. I've said it clearly. I'd rather somebody else be the the Republican nominee uh, that I'd be excited to get behind. Uh, But anyway, lots of people out there very excited about uh, former President Trump throwing his hat into the ring. But he said something. This is what I want to talk about. He said something that really stood out to people. And I want to play it for you. And then I want to have a discussion, especially as we as Christians. What should we think about this? Let's listen to this specific thing that former President Trump said last night. Every drug dealer during his or her life on average will kill 500 people with the drugs they sell, not to mention the destruction of families. But we're going to be asking everyone who sells drugs, gets caught selling drugs, to receive the death penalty for their heinous acts. Because it's the only way. We don't need any more blue ribbon committees. We don't need, I don't like to say this, and I don't even know if the American public is ready for it, and a lot of my people say, please don't say that, sir. That's not nice. They kill 500 people each on average. And if you don't do this, in China, when I was with President Xi, I 
I said, President, do you have a drug problem? No, 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 we don't. He looked at me like I didn't know what I was doing. So... I've made clear on this show my thought. Let me say a couple different things. Yeah. I would like your opinion. Okay. I've made clear on this show, anyone who's listened to it, my thoughts on the death penalty. Yeah, you are I'm anti death, death penalty. penalty for many reasons uh, that we can get into. But also, let's acknowledge we have a drug problem in our country, right? We Sure. There's a Absolutely, drug problem. Absolutely, that's true. But the thought that we could combat this drug problem with executing drug dealers and people cheered it's so upon wild. seeing that i literally was what i saw the clip of that this morning and was like i don't i i would have thought that this was like a joke or so the clip and then when they cheered i didn't know what to do with the cheering for it that's what I did. I mean, if he believes it, he believes it, going to run on it, whatever. That was the line they cheered. Like, right. you're going to execute drug dealers. Right. Because, again, not a fan of drug dealers. We <laughs> have a problem. not pro-drug dealer. I don't know where that 500 line number comes from him, yeah. but uh, we cannot be a culture that says, let's deal with this by Just killing. Executing or executing That is... I couldn't believe, I think what I just couldn't believe, what I was like mouth open was the cheering for this. I think it felt like to me, here's something I can say that will be provocative and the people will buy it and really like it. But I think he means it. Do you think he means it? I do. Or do you think he's saying something that sounds provocative and he knows people will like I, if he if that was it, then that was a misstep because I don't think most people are going to like. But that. the people in the room, he knew his audience because the I people guess. in the room cheered at that unless they were holding up. Well, signs let's keep like him. I, he tends to say things that he believes. Right? Yeah, we no, learned that right. in the past. You're right. That's true. That's true. So, so okay. What do you, what so do you take mean? him at his word. You're saying. Yeah, and people cheering for what? Like that felt depraved to me. That felt. Um, and I too far. Oh, gosh, yes. That's and, and, how I feel. It and for me, far. as I said, I've been against the death penalty for multiple reasons. One, I have a hard time. Uh, people disagree with me. I totally get it. This is an issue. I don't think this is a right and wrong. I'm right. You're wrong type of deal. But what I do believe is for me, if to have a pro-life yes. ethic, it's hard to then make the leap that says, except in cases of criminals. Exactly. And the hard part is because there's been so That's many it. wrongful death penalties occur. So many wrongful executions. The fact that wrongful people yeah. are executed yeah. is enough for me to go, well, then nobody nope, should be executed. No one should be executed. I'm not saying release the prisoners. Right. Oh, no, you're, not, at all. And you're not saying don't uh, penalize or punish the drug dealer correct but this feels so extreme like that's your line you're gonna say we're gonna execute all the drug dealers like then you're gonna put a whole bunch of other people other criminals in the category of executionable offenses i i think i'm with you i have a hard time with the death penalty because of the wrongful deaths but also it just doesn't it doesn't fit in a pro-life framework in mm. my mind i know for some people it does but i i am one of those like womb to tomb pro-life folks yeah. So it's so was the cheering offensive. here was the cheering here uh, like we're tough on crime. Is that what that was or was that maybe or maybe it's a maybe there's a community of people wherever he was speaking that really have been impacted by, you know, drug culture. And so they're like, yes, we want to see that feels like justice to us. I, I don't know. I, I, maybe that is maybe it's we're tough on crime. We're not going to let drug dealers 
take lives. I don't understand why that's the platform. I also think that if you and, and, and I don't care who said it, I don't understand why that's the platform. Agreed, you know what I mean? Agreed. And I'm not sure. Again, I've never run for office. I've yeah. never been in politics. Yeah. Appealing to the lack of drug issues in China feels like a weird way to go weird i was confused communists i'm gonna i was with the communist leader of china and he doesn't have a drug problem and uh so i want to execute it felt weird to me yeah that that was a very bizarre connection although i think he was saying he did tell the uh president what is his president g that he does have a drug problem and he was saying no 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 and trump was saying no you do have a drug problem. no i think he was saying he doesn't i think he was answering no 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 why why and you can tell why (laughs) i think it was like no we don't have a drug because we execute our drug or because we have we really keep our thumb on people that's how i read that okay yeah i don't know why you appeal to any communist leader as like your point of morality or decision making scale of one to ten one being I am dreading this. 10 being, I couldn't be more excited. Scale of 1 to 10, your Aubrey Sampson's excitement level for the upcoming following two years. We're 730-ish days from the election. How excited are you for a presidential election season? I mean, in one sense, I remember there was this great SNL sketch when Trump was no longer in office that they were like, lamenting what will we talk about now on twitter (laughs) like the guy gives us great fodder and a lot of entertaining things and so for that coming up next is a dream home really something we can afford we're going to discuss that next year on the common good am 1160 hope for your life Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.